Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We have a new soundboard, so if the audio sounds better to you, that's why. If it sounds the same, then we still have a new soundboard. We're just trying to do the very best job we can from a technical standpoint so that our guests can deliver their stories and you won't be distracted by poor audio quality. Because my guests are really the heroes of this podcast as they bravely step forward and share vulnerable and authentic and real stories. And I have guests in my home tonight um, that are sharing their story. They're my friends, Ellen and Randy Dastrup. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, Just to introduce this couple, they're married. They've been married about 27 years. They live in Provo. They grew up in the Richfield area. They have two kids and two grandkids. Um, active LDS couple, wonderful couple. They've written a book. Will you tell us, our listeners, the name of your book? The book is It's Always Been You by Ellen Williams Dastrup. And tell our listeners where they can find that book. You can find it on Amazon.com by searching for Ellen Williams Dastrup. Ellen is spelled E-L-I-N. Um, and you can also find it on BYUstore.com. It's uh, also going to be an audiobook available on Audible and iTunes. That's awesome. This is a book, listeners, um, about Randy's journey being a victim of, of abuse growing up, um, which in some ways led to coping mechanisms to deal with the pain of that, um, including pornography, addiction, and in, and infidelity during his marriage. And they're bravely sharing stepping forward to share their story in this book because it helps us understand how to use the atonement of Jesus Christ to heal and to find hope and compassion. And we've come at a conference and I've loved conference and often we're taught principles about how that the atonement can bless our lives and the atonement can heal us and can give us hope. But then there's sometimes when people step forward and actually talk in real life about how that happened for them, that then gives me and hopefully you listeners sort of practical tools on how to make this real in your life and going from a theoretical principle-based concept kind of in our minds to in our hearts of how to do that. And our joint prayer before we started is that Ellen and Randy will share things that will help you. Um, You may feel alone. You may feel like no one is in the spot I am. You may feel the atonement couldn't possibly apply to me. Um, You may feel there's no hope forward and or you may be trying to help somebody that feels that way um, as a parent or as a priesthood leader, as a friend. And so that's what our hope is on the podcast. And if I do a good job, I'll kind of quit talking now and let Ellen and Randy do um, sharing of their story. Is that okay for an introduction? Thank you. Sounds great. Yeah. So let's just start. Tell, with, tell us your story. Whoever wants to start first. Go ahead. Well, so... First off, I I come from a, a multi generational members of the church family, um, strong family, strong beliefs, uh, and have, have had a testimony of the of the gospel for most or all of my life in in phases, right? In at line upon line, um, but I had uh, well the experience we're talking about is it started. I was about six years old, and there was an older boy in the neighborhood who introduced me to pornography and and uh, sexual themes. 
And I felt complicit in that. I felt like I was to blame in that and very much felt like I was all alone and no one was as broken as I was. All the lessons you hear in church and all the, all the things you're told and all the things you're supposed to be doing. And I knew I was not that. Uh, that combined with some, some emotional scarring. Um, I, I had a very horrible self-worth, uh, self-esteem. I, I did not like myself. Um, in fact, I, I don't remember in my memory when I liked myself. It was before, before that six years old. And so it's been a struggle all my life. Um, it affects my relationships and it affects how I relate to other people and how I deal with, with things in my life. Right. And so, so in my life, and, and it, it's interesting to me that that weakness, whatever that is, Satan knows about that and will put it in your path. And so I didn't have to go find pornography. I mean, even in a day before internet and before you could just pick it up on your phone anywhere, I didn't really have to find it. It found me. I would stumble onto it in places or someone would show me or, you know, and so there was always that opportunity. Uh, and it became my drug of choice. The, the dopamine from that was a momentary escape from the horribleness that I felt, uh, although momentary, because shortly after you'd feel even worse, right? compounding. And then where you need more and you need more. Uh, I've gone through several times in my life where I've quit and, and, and just moved on and not going to do that anymore. But the underlying issue was still there. I didn't address the underlying issue. I didn't address why I felt like I felt. And so I like to say it's, it's white knuckling through life, right? If you grip onto something, you're holding onto a bar on a roller coaster or something, you grip really tight, your knuckles turn white. And so you're hanging on for dear life. You're not doing, you're not sinning. You're not doing the wrong things. Your actions are in accordance with what you, what you should be doing but you know that you're just hanging on and at any moment you could be thrown off. And so I've quit many, many times. And of course then without fixing the problem underlying it, it rears its head again and, and we're in that cycle again. So when we got married, I knew about his problems. I knew that this was something that he had struggled with. Um, I did not know about the abuse. I did not know um, about you know, some of the other verbal and emotional abuse that he'd endured. Um, but I, I, I knew that he had had problems, but I just thought I was so young and naive. Pornography problems. Yes. When you say you knew about that. Yeah. I, I, but being young and naive, I thought, well, you know, we're going to be married and we'll be happy and it'll be how fine. Did, and we'll be How over. did you know about that? He told me, we talked about it. Um, Respect Randy for talking about that in the dating process. You sound like a pretty stand up guy and, Want to do the best you can, so I re respect you. Communication was always really important to us as we were dating, and we dated for six years before we got married, and so we knew each other very well. So, uh, well, <laughs> we thought we did. <laughs> so, um, so we get married, and and it and it didn't stop, and um, it, he would tell me about it. I I would wake up in the middle of the night, and he'd be gone, and he'd be at the computer, and. Um, you know, we, 
we struggled. We tried to, we, he, like he said, he, nobody was as good at quitting as he was. He was really good at quitting, um, a lot of times. And so, um, fast forward through a lot of things, but, um, we get to that point where, uh, some other traumatic things had happened in our lives and, um, really wore both of us down emotionally, physically, spiritually. And, um, we kind of just pulled away a little bit from each other and kind of shut down a little bit. And, um, he started acting weird. He started acting really, really not Randy like, and I kept asking what's going on, what's going on. And he, he just say, I'm just, I'm struggling. Just give me time. I'm just struggling. I'll be okay. And, um, then he told me, go ahead. We had just moved uh, back to Utah and, and Ellen was struggling with some of the experiences that we had had. Um, there were some, some traumatic events that, that, uh, but she was struggling with some of those and, and I didn't want to be more of a burden. I, I didn't want to add any more to her plate. And so I was just suffering in silence, right? Taking this on and, and the brave face, right? You, you push harder, you do better. You work harder um, when in reality, I'm not doing better. I'm doing worse. I knew there was something. I knew there was something. And so we got to the point where he said uh, one, one night, one August night, he said, I uh, have something to tell you. We were driving in the car. And the spirit said to me, you need to pull over right now. And I did. And he said, I've been having an affair. And I said, no, no, you haven't. And I, for an hour, was fully in denial. This is not my, you know, spiritual giant, stalwart, you know, multi-generational, strong, wonderful, amazing husband that I absolutely adore and have adored my whole life. And um, in full denial. Um, and that... That was the day our life changed. That was the day our life changed. Um, Through my experiences, I learned to compartmentalize. Um, that you can you can put this over here in this compartment and and keep it separate from this compartment, right? And and that's how you keep a brave face, and that's how you keep the the outer image, the the facade. Um, even though you know all this is happening, you you don't let that crack your facade. And so I I've actually grown pretty adept at, at duality and super good. Yeah. What well, define duality for us just as a side just as a side note? So being two people, being um not in a clinical clinical sense, like schizophrenia or anything like that, but but just having these actions separate from these actions, this life separate from this life. I was also in the, in the Marine Corps and that was, a, you know, my persona as a Marine when I'm, when I'm working as a Marine was, was different than at home. Right. And so, so it's easy to then segue that into other areas. Why did you tell your wife you were having an affair? That's a good question. I, I wrestled with that for a long time. In fact, I was going to 
wait. I was going to fix the problem and then wait for some amount of time to where, you know, it wasn't so fresh and so painful. Um, and I was in the process of, of getting out of this relationship and the person that I was in this relationship with uh, called my bishop and let, told my bishop about uh, what had been going on. And so I told him I wanted to come talk to him and, and fix things and get things addressed, but I needed to talk to my wife first. And that was a very painful day. I spent all day waiting for the right moment. And she, her experience was the spirit told her to pull over. My experience was I felt, I don't know if peace is the right word, but I felt that this is the right time. Um, this is the right time. And so I said, I, I need to talk to, you, talk to you about something. She'd known there was something all day. And I want you to keep telling your story, Ellen, but maybe a, a side question. What would you tell to um, a spouse that's learning for the first time that their partner has been unfaithful? Um, rely on the Lord first and foremost. Um, remember your covenants, hold on to the vision that God loves you. But the overriding thing at that very moment that happened, um, was compassion, was compassion. Um, yes, I was angry. I, yes, I was deeply confused, deeply hurt, but I... I could see because I had known him for so long and I'd known his family. And uh, like, for example, he, I was four years old and my mom was directing a play and Randy was eight years old in the play that my mom was directing. And I remember being at the practices and seeing this blonde haired eight year old boy up on the stage. And I, I, in that moment that he told me, I saw him as a child. I saw him as, as a deeply wounded individual. I saw him as a teenager who was struggling with those horrible relationships and, and the, the abuse that he had endured that I, I saw him as that person and I had compassion for him. I saw him as an adult who in an adult body, but still making those very juvenile de decisions and choices that were deeply wounding to himself. And so I was in that moment able to have deep compassion for him and to see him as a child of God trying to make this wrong right, trying to come to me with pain and fear. Just the fear in that car at that moment was so just palpable, so present. And I needed to honor his soul. I needed to honor the fear and the the concern that he had that this was going to change our lives and this was going to um, ruin our family. And I needed to have honor for that. I needed to extend grace to him and I needed to have compassion for him. That doesn't change the fact that then we have to do the hard work. But to start from a place of compassion is what makes all the difference in whatever it is that you're facing in life to have compassion for the sinner and to understand that they are a child of God. 
with a history that deserves to be recognized. And that, that, that's what changed it for me at that moment. Another important thing in, in this process is we talk in the book about metabolizing, that it takes time to metabolize information. Uh, and so when I told her, I, I have a brother, an older brother who went through some similar experiences and he had been excommunicated and then some years later rebaptized. And, and he was the first person I called and I talked to him every day through that whole year and, and beyond. And one of the things we talked about is metabolizing. And so that was key, that was forefront of my mind when I'm sharing this with her. And it's so important. I've known about this all my life and I've known about the affair since it started months earlier. Um, she's just hearing about this. This is all brand new. Drinking this is all, from a fire hydrant. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is way, uh, uh, so much information to, to handle all at once and emotions and, and everything else along with that. And I need to allow her time to metabolize that and be patient, not have an expectation, okay, but I'm fixing it and so you should just get over it. Whatever time it takes you to, that you need to go through this, and it, it would come up, there would be several times after this that she would have a bad day and say, I, I need you to tell me again. Explain to me why. Explain to me what was going on. Explain to me why you were there. And, and we'd go through it. Anytime it would come up, we would go on walks and we would talk about it again and again. Again and again. Just to comment on what Ellen said, listeners, I'm struck with you held both of these kind of emotions or, or principles in your brain. You had tremendous pain. And pain to me is a primary emotion that leads to anger. And you had compassion. And you saw your husband in, with maybe the eyes that Heavenly Parents saw him as a young boy, um, injured, and and there was still you know, agency in this decision, he was still wrong and he had to face the consequences, but somehow you kind of went to the 40,000 foot level and saw a big picture here. But I think that's what I, but I love that you still, I don't think you are a listener. Anybody wants to communicate to someone who's been wrong that you should only feel compassion. I think you need to feel pain and anger. There is righteous anger there. <laughs> and those, yes. sometimes I think we put on a Mormon culture thing where we don't show pain because we're so faithful. We don't show anger. And I think those are primary human emotions that we need to honor within ourselves as part of the healing process. Do you want to? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think the biggest disservice that we could do is to, for one moment, suggest that it's just something to just get over. It's just something to just, you know, brush under the rug that, that you're okay. So I went to one of the reasons why I know that God loves me is because a few weeks after this happened, I went to a, a BYU education week class and the topic was about something totally different, but it, it, the whole week was for me. I sat in a room full of people and the whole week was for me, this particular class. And one of the, the 
concepts that the teacher kept saying over and over was your pain matters. Your pain matters. And so although I needed to work on forgiving and I needed to, you know, help him be what he needed to be and I needed to, you know, concentrate on him, my pain mattered. What I needed to go through, how I needed to metabolize mattered. God cared about how this was affecting me. And and the atonement is not just, as we know, not just for those who are have have committed a wrong, but for those who have been wronged. And I was wronged. I and I I my pain mattered. And I knew that God was going to salve my pain and fix what had happened to me. So not for one minute do I want to gloss over that. And um I, I just know that in that moment that I found out. The Holy Ghost sat with me and held my hand and said, you can do this. And so my my steps were guided from there to um, there's anger and then there's unreasonable anger, right? Hmm. And so um, to go through what I needed to go through and to feel all the feels, let's make that clear. You're going to feel all the feels, but to do so in a reasonable controlled, guided way that will save you and save your family. Um, so often we see in situations like this where people do things that they react in such an angry way that that they're almost, they get to a point of no return and that does more damage than good. So I didn't want to get to that point. Great answer. Did you feel like, I think sometimes when things go wrong, people feel it's their fault. Um, did you say, and I don't know if that's a cultural thing or just a human thing. Did you say, well, this is somehow, this is my fault, um, that he had an affair. It's because, and you could go down this whole self-loathing, you know, this, this unhealthy thing where we all look inward and we just, that can be pretty, um, puts us in a spiral. Did you do some of that? And maybe if you did, what's your advice to others not to do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so Randy, how long did I do that? Um, I didn't count. <laughs> it, it went on for a while. Yeah, that, and the reason why that happens is uh, because that's that's it's you're a human right. Response. That's absolutely that. That's every song you hear on the radio. That's every book you read. That's every. It's that. It's the woman's fault, or you know whatever that. It, there must have been something wrong in our marriage. We had that discussion how many times? We were so good. We were so good. What happened? What What did I do? At what point? You know, because you want to find out fault, right? Whose fault? What was the fault? Well, that's pointless. That's a ridiculous exercise, right? Yeah, assigning blame. Right. That doesn't make any sense. And so, but for a long time, I thought, well, it must have been me. It must have been, it, I drove you to this. I um, drove you to I this. I drove you to this. Somehow I did something that that disconnected us. And and I thought that for a while. So she would ask me that, you know, why wasn't I thinking about her? And why wasn't that present in my mind? Um, I love her deeply and always have. Uh, this was not a manifestation of my feelings toward her. This was a manifestation of my feelings toward me. Explain that more. I, I hated myself. I hated being with myself. The The addiction process... The drug of choice for me, of course, was was dopamine. The delivery system was was pornography in adult situations. 
And, and so that, that's what I would turn to when I, when I needed to, needed to escape, needed to numb. And my response to that was, well, why didn't you turn to me? Yeah. And so I had to learn that that's not how addiction works. Great question. Great answer. It really has much less to do with pornography than it does the drug, the, the dopamine. It's not about sex. It's not that I'm out seeking extra sex. It's that I'm broken and I need some medication. The salve. I need something to to fill that gap. So so there's a dissonance. And until that dissonance is resolved, there's you can resolve that dissonance and make everything in harmony, or you can medicate that dissonance and make it fade into the background for a time. And I had learned time and time again, those, those neural pathways carved in my head since I was a little boy, that that's how you address that, is you salve that, you, you medicate that until the pain goes away. And I, I wish listeners could see Randy's hands because they're not equal in height and it's describing the dissidents as you're, I wish we had a video part of that <laughs> right there because you a very, do a very good job of explaining Talk about the the origin of this, um, this woundedness, this brokenness. I think you inferred it was the abuse you suffered um, as a child. Is that? Do you want to just explain more about wh- what got you to this spot that you needed to numb? Well, I there there are some high expectations in our culture. There are some very high expectations. Um, perfection is our goal. And perfection still is our goal. But I love that in the past several conferences, they've explicitly said, perfection is not in this life. You're not going to make it to perfection by the time you pass to the next life. Um, you should be working on it. It should be a daily uh, process. It should be part of your your walk. But I, I really felt like I needed to be perfect. Uh, another concept that came up that was that I had uh, either learned or assumed growing up was that I had to fix my problems before I could approach the Savior and ask for His forgiveness and ask for His help. I had to clean myself up and had to take care of all those things. That goes back to my quitting pornography so many times. I am trying to get myself right and then go to the Savior. And what I learned through this experience, when you hit rock bottom, these weaknesses are given to me to humble myself before the Savior and say, I cannot. And in a dirty state, right, in a a filthy, disgusting state, to then turn to the Savior and say, I cannot do this alone. And let him help you be clean. I can't clean myself. I, I don't have the capacity to clean myself. And I have to ask him to do it for me. Boy, I love that, Randy. I love I, I love what you just said. I because I think that's part of our culture, as we sort of our Puritan culture, as we fix everything on our own, then we turn to the Savior. Or we talk to our wife about a situation once it's in the past. And I think one of the things you're teaching is is to to use the Savior in people 
in our lives that love us now. Yeah. Um, because we're, we need each other, including the Savior, to move forward. In our culture, we talk a lot about self-reliance. Yeah. Self-reliance is a very important principle. But sometimes we conflate those two things. Self-reliance is, I am taking care of my responsibilities to the best of my ability. I'm taking care of my family. I'm doing the things that I need to do physically to, to provide for my family. We don't have to be self-reliant in getting ourselves cleaned from pain and sin and, and, and things that affect us in our life. In fact, we don't have that ability. I can, I can store food, right? I can have a job. I can store food. I can take care of and be self-reliant and provide for my family. I cannot remove the pain and sins and brokenness that I feel. Only the Savior can do that. And so we have to decouple those things. It, it's not a self-reliance issue. It's a relying wholly on the merits of Christ to save. Talk about, actually, really like I wrote down the self word self-reliance, listeners. Talk about, is there a way to save of this woundedness and brokenness? What percent comes from being a victim of, of abuse as a six-year-old boy? Um, is that the core? Is it, is it hard to isolate it and just say, you know, and maybe a sister question is, if that didn't happen, would pornography and infidelity come into your life? Or is it just impossible to know that? I, I think it's hard to know that. I do think that, well, I know that we are given weaknesses by design. I always felt like I was a reject in the creation process. You know, you see this assembly line of people being put together, and I was kicked off to the side because I was broken. Because and, of the abuse or separate from the abuse? No, separate from the abuse. You just felt that way yeah. before the abuse happened or separate from the abuse? Well, I don't remember a whole lot before Four, the abuse six. happened. Yeah, <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, I have I some recollections, <laughs> but I don't remember emotional recollections as much. Um, but I, And I'm sure it's combined with that, right? That my feeling less than, my feeling of being not as perfect as, as everyone I saw and, and what, I, what I felt I needed to be, that that caused me to feel broken. Um, but I have always had those weaknesses. The thing I came to realize is I was designed with those weaknesses. Talk, I wasn't a mistake. Talk more about that. I was given those weaknesses by a loving Heavenly Father because He knew that those are the tools that I need, those are the weaknesses that I need, the gaps that I need in my life to rely on the Savior, to say, I can't do this alone. And everyone has their own weaknesses, right? Everyone's weaknesses are different, completely different, uh, individual. Uh, but everyone's weaknesses are, are given to each person on purpose for the, for the purpose of bringing them back to the Savior. I love that. And I love that that puts us all on the same moral footing is that we're all created the way we're intended to be, but we're, none of us are created perfect. Talk more about the weaknesses. I assume being a victim of a childhood abuse isn't a weakness. That's a that's not something that you're in any way responsible for. Um, so I assume when you say weakness, you're not referring to that or you, you were overly vulnerable or somehow that was your fault. I assume you're talking about other situations, um, pornography, infidelity. 
just so, if you just share more on that so um, our listeners understand. So I see now from this point, looking back, that that was not my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not accountable for those actions. I, I was, I was, I, I didn't have the capacity to be in charge of that situation. What a great statement. But I felt because, I mean, naturally there's a curiosity there, right? I, I liked what I was seeing and I wanted to see more. I was curious and it, it was, it was uh, an appetite that was coming to life in me. And I, I felt like because I was feeling those feelings that then it was my fault that that uh, it was just as my as much my fault as it was his or maybe even more and and the feeling of broken comes from knowing what the model of perfection is and knowing where where the bar is set and I'm supposed to be and knowing what no one else knows about how far I fall short of that because of my desires because of my my weaknesses in avoiding the, the pornography. Or well, that. right. And, but so then because of those experiences, he learned, it was learned behavior that when you're sad, that's what you go to. When you're happy, that's what you go to. When you're confused, that's what you go to. And so then as he became a teenager, um, his, his relationships with girls um, was just, was, was distorted. He didn't know how to relate correctly. Um, he, he just, he didn't. And so that was the weakness that he was feeling. He just, he, it didn't make sense to him and he didn't know how to get through it. This is helpful for our listeners and thanks for handling all these follow-up questions. Um, this is a question either of you could answer, but you know, I don't know what the darkest time for you was from age six to whenever, you know, during the pre-mission years, you served a mission in Puerto Rico. We didn't mention that. But you're, I think, 50 right now. If you could go back and talk to your six-year-old self or 12-year-old self or 15-year-old self in some of the very darkest, you know, times in there, what would you say to your younger self now? And Ellen, you could... We're just laughing because we have uh, uh, just addressed this for the last year. Um, He has had a hard time forgiving his 18-year-old self. Yes, but this is you talking to other people that need to hear what you're going to say right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so as, as Ellen is talking about going through this process, I found it fairly easy and found it, found it quite easy to forgive that five-year-old, six-year-old boy and, and the things that he got started in and involved in. And strangely, I mean, after, after we'd gone through this experience, I found it not so hard to forgive that. 40-something-year-old man. It was the 18-year-old that I had such a hard time because he should have known better. He was very much accountable, and he caused a lot of pain. He caused a lot of issues. And I, have a, I had a hard time forgiving him until I, I worked on that you can only do what you can do. You, you work with what you know. When you know better, you do better. But I was doing the best I could with what I had at the time. And so I've learned to be compassionate to the 18-year-old, just like I am to the five, six-year-old and the 40-something-year-old. If I could go back and talk to myself, there were, there were 
there were a lot of dark corners growing up. Um, it was not uncommon to have thoughts and feelings of suicide. Yeah. Um, in fact, they ask if you have a plan. I have a plan. I've, I've had a plan. I've, but I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to. Especially now. Give up what I've, what I've learned. Give up the experiences that I've had to this point. I would tell that person, that younger me, to just not give up. We, we also talked about, I wouldn't wish this on anyone to go through these things, to suffer this pain. But at the same time, I wouldn't change any of that. Now, at this point, looking back on it, because those experiences gave me a profound experience, feeling the love, the loving arms of our Savior. I remember very distinctly being in a very low, very disgusting place, like I, would, I was just at her house. And turn to the Savior and just ask for forgiveness, to ask for love, and felt his arms around me. More than just, I mean, not physically, but almost physically. Another thing along this goes back to the weaknesses that I've been given by design and that I'm not a reject. I am a noble son of God. My brother told me that. And, and that's just rung true through this whole experience. I am a noble son of God. And the mistakes I make and, and my shortcomings don't affect that, don't change that. I still have that worth and that title. And he reaches for me and wants me to come back and, and be that in my life. Ellen, do you have any thoughts? Uh, <laughs> well, every day, every minute of every day, I just, in my brain, it screams how much I love this man. But um, so we wrote a book because um, this experience. Yeah, why would you write a book? That's right. a great question. Why this, would we do that? This is. I, I just said to Randy, I'm going to take this to my grave because I don't want anybody to know this about you because this does not represent the best you. This is not who you are. And so now I wrote a book. <laughs> um, so we decided I, I had this spiritual experience that I needed to, um, I needed to write a fictional account of this story, not necessarily because we're unique, but because we're unique in wanting to talk about it because we're unique in the, um, the humility that Randy has displayed and the testimony that he's displayed in the way that he talks about it. And we're unique in the fact that, um, that I stayed. And that's, that's not super unique, but um, anyway, so I decided that I needed to write the book. I, I started writing it. I shared it with Randy and he said, this is really good. You ought to write it. It is a fictional, fictionalized um, story because there's plenty of people 
that never asked to be in a book, right? That And that's not fair to them. Um, and so it's, it's a fictionalized book, but there's a lot of there's a lot of our truth in there and there's a lot of our testimony in there. Um, and, and it's absolutely the kind of thing that will bring you to the savior and bring you to a, a deeper understanding of the savior. Um, I was at a women's retreat a, a couple of months ago and a woman who was just right in the middle of this, her husband, you know, is, she's just right at the beginning of this journey. And, um, she looked at me with tear-filled eyes and she said, is this going to get any better? And <laughs> I just wanted to hug her and just say, there's so much joy on the other side. Don't give up. There's so much joy on the other side. Hold on. Just keep going. Just keep walking. Get through it. You can get through it. There's joy on the other side. Tell us more why you decided to write a book. Any more thoughts on that? I do love that you just written this book and sharing your story. So we did talk about this is a painful experience to go through. And what's the purpose of going through all of this experience and then not helping someone else who may be struggling with the same thing? We've had several friends and people um, question. That we don't even know. <laughs> no, no. Several oh. people question why we would put our names on such a thing. Um, in fact, there was some pretty vocal opposition to putting our names on there. And, and initially, we had actually, Ellen was going to put a pen name on there, and we weren't going to put our names on it. But this book is about not hiding. This book is about bringing things into the light and addressing them and letting the healing light of Christ cure that cancer. So how can we profess that that's what is required and not be willing to do that. Yeah, right Right now we're talking so much about um, embracing those that have a different color skin. That's, that's something that's so, you know, important. But part of the point of this book is that we need to embrace those that have a different color of sin. Um, I've also always been fascinated by, you know, what does that look like when you walk out of the bishop's office with you know, some, some ideas and some tools and some direction, and you walk out of the therapist's office with ideals and tools and direction, but then you go home. And how do you put that into practice? How do you apply those things to yourself? And so that's another part of what this book is about is like, what does that journey look like? Um, not that this book is a how-to necessarily in any way, shape, or form, but this is, it illustrates that this is how you can put it into practice. This is how you can go home and apply the, the principles, the saving principles that Jesus Christ offers in your life, in your marriage, in your family, every day. Talk to couples that are listening that one has been unfaithful, had an affair, and they're wondering if um, they can do what you're doing and keep your marriage together. And I think your marriage is even stronger now than perhaps it's ever been. And some of the things this painful process have brought you is maybe fundamental sort of foundational skills that are even better. Communication, honesty, vulnerability, common goals. Humility is a big one. Humility. You have to be humble. There can't be pride. You have to jettison pride. That'll, so how, that'll destroy the journey. And some, I think you would give some permission for some people listening that given your circumstances, it's a, it's 
it's the right decision for your marriage to end. I, yes, absolutely. And so help, I'm making marriage counselors right now for a second, but help listeners that wonder, you know, you're giving a lot of listeners hope that they can keep their marriage together. And I love marriages staying together, especially when there's common goals and both groups want, both parties want to keep the marriage together. And there's, even though there's pain because of there's a common goal going forward, but just talk to, you know, how, how to know if I'm listening and I meet and my partner's had an affair, if I can do what Ellen's doing or if my path is actually different. Foundations matter. The foundation of, of like you say, similar goals, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ being all in with that matters. If for one moment, Randy had been a shrinking violet where the church is concerned, you know, I'm not going to go to church for a while. It's too embarrassing. That wouldn't have worked for us. I needed him to be all in. Um, I needed to see every day. He calls it his peaceable walk. Um, as Moroni talks about that, um, to have a peaceable walk with man and with God, I needed to see that every day. And that's how he rebuilt the trust. I needed, we had always had the foundation of communication his honesty with every single question that I would ask mattered. Honesty matters. Um, compassion matters. Um, like I said before, honoring his soul and him honoring my journey and what I needed. The the time that he allowed me to, to metabolize and heal, the time that I was allowing him to metabolize and heal. Um, really good help. Finding a good counselor, finding a good support group, finding good friends. Having a good ward who does not pass judgment, but who opens <laughs> their hearts continually to us mattered. If that's another thing that I could just beg and plead people to do is in your ward family, open your arms, open your hearts. Um, those were the things that, that mattered. Those were the things that helped us stay together. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, our ward's response, and of course, we didn't announce it to everyone. But I, at the time. <laughs> at the time. Now that we've written the book, there are several of our ward members who have read the book, and we've talked to several of them about the Good. experience. Um, but it was important. So we would go to church, and we sat on the second row. We didn't hide. We didn't try to avoid. I was, of course, released from my calling and was invited not to partake of the sacrament or raise my hand to sustain anyone or participate in any way. No prayers, no, no participating in lessons. And that was, that was tough. That was a challenge and not, not from the embarrassment side of it, but because I wanted to, uh, that's part of me. I like to share that. Um, but our ward family, uh, for example, the high priest group leader at the time, we still had the high priest group in the ward, uh, I went and told him and just generally and said, I can't participate in class. And he did a, a very good job of, of making that a comfortable thing in our, in our class and our lessons. It wasn't odd. It wasn't weird. It was just okay. And we talk about that in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, it, that's one of the things that I really wanted to pay tribute in the book, um, about was a supportive ward, supportive friends supportive family. I love that. I love all those answers on this subject and I love your word family. And I've always felt like that's our job as 
is not to judge and just love and not to try to figure out the backstory and who's at fault and mm -hmm. that to me just or elevate one spouse over the other. I think Randy rightly so would have elevated you and continues to do so because he was the one that messed up. But even in that situation, I don't think it's my job as a ward member to, to try to figure out who's the hero and who's the villain. Just you have a common goal to stay together as a couple and stay in the church. And my responsibility as a ward member is just to love you and support you as an equal entity and not sort of divide you in my mind. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I love that you had all these common goals. And maybe that's thing gives other couples hope if they could look at your story and say, well, that's obviously not what we hoped would happen in our marriage. But given that's the reality, what are our hopes going forward? And can we actually then use this experience? And even though we would never wish it on ourselves or our worst enemies, that's the beauty of the atonement of Jesus Christ then. It's somehow, when, once the sin's taken away, the life lessons then can strengthen our marriage, can strengthen his personality. But then you become what I call the wounded healer. And I'll read that quote in a second. But be sharing your story, you give hope to others um, because you're honest and vulnerable and authentic. And, and I'll read the quote now. I read a lot on the podcast, listeners, because you knew it was coming, you regular listeners. Um, Henry Norwin writes, and both of you are this person, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you know this desert. <laughs> um, and there's multiple deserts we've kind of talked about, um, some that are sin-related and some that aren't, like being a victim of childhood abuse. But regardless of the desert, you talking about it and not hiding, you've used that word several times, not hiding. And I think that's one of Satan's greatest tools. Sin is one of Satan's tools, but hiding in the shame and the self-loathing and feeling that there's no way God could still love me is where Satan really wins. But you sharing your story, I think then just helps other people out of their deserts. Even if their desert is, isn't exactly like yours, the principles you're teaching and the connection to the atonement of Jesus Christ is what mortality is about. I think we're all kind of wounded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think we don't present ourselves as wounded at church. We kind of put on our best fronts, and and that can create that dissonance when your hands are an equal level. Randy, I'm still coming back to your hands. And I think presenting our authentic selves in appropriate situations reduces the divisiveness and connects us and helps us. So I'll just kind of turn it back to you. To, I could ask you another question, or I don't know if you want to do any follow-ups. I'd love to. So I, I did want to mention. Good. Go for it, Randy. You talked about how you stay together, and we talked a little bit about being humble and, and working together. The other part of that is people take their cue from, from Ellen. There are plenty of people who would have grabbed pitchforks and torches and chased me down had she done that. True. <laughs> and because of her compassion and her tenderness and, and wanting to, to work this through with me, then her friends and, and others took that lead right, and treated me like that also. It was a little awkward when we met a few people for the first time family and friends that, that we had told about it or had been told about it. And then we hadn't physically been with them. And so it was a little awkward to first be with them. 
but that melts away pretty quickly. So I would say um, Elder Neil A. Maxwell, and paraphrasing him, I don't remember the quote, but, but to the effect of that the cavity that's hollowed out through our afflictions becomes the receptacle for our joy. How do we have the capacity to have the joy if we haven't made space for that joy through the opposite, through, through some suffering? Uh, I think of Alma the Younger and his experience. He talked about being harrowed up. We talk, you know, sometimes we pass over that. A harrow is a very aggressive tool that tears and rips the ground. His soul was being torn and ripped up from his guilt and shame. And when he turned to the Savior, the Savior didn't say, come back next week, or it's going to take a year until this happens. Immediately, when he called on the Savior, he said his joy was just as much as his pain had been. One of the, the lessons we learned in, in the church there, there is discipline, there, there are councils, and, and there are, are things that you have to do to be right with the church. But that does not prescribe when you can feel the love of the Savior or the Spirit in your life or feel forgiven of Him. I felt forgiven and His love way before we had completed the, way before. the prescribed year of, of uh, disfellowship. So one of the things that that um, I have said to women who say, you know, how why haven't you left? Why 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 did you stay? Is I I listen to his testimony and I hear it and I feel it I feel it, and I'm so grateful that like the prodigal son he finally came to himself. Why would I give that up? <laughs> that swallows up every pain and every sadness. He came to himself. He's finally who I want him to be. He's finally who I knew he could be. I'm staying. <laughs> it would be ridiculous to leave. I'm struck with the things you're teaching us. Um, I really agree, you know, that you're, you didn't add to the Savior's burden, that he's paid the price. And somehow his load didn't get heavier and his cross even heavier because of your mistakes or my mistakes that he's paid the price now um, it created significant burden for you and your wife and your family and so there's obviously that burden is increased but i think if we look at the savior that way that he's paid the price and i think it's easier to come come unto ourselves using that scripture in luke ellen in return and I love the prodigal because I, the prodigal assumes he'll come back, but he'll come back as a, as a servant. He self-determines his future because he messed up. Yeah. And that beauty of that parable, or at least one of them, when he comes back, his father, who I rep think represents our Heavenly Father, the Savior, or maybe even a friend or a spouse in some situations like yours, um, you come back as a son. And he signified that by putting a coat on his shoulders and a ring on his finger. And I think it stunned the, the son. He said, I'm not, why are you treating me this way? I'm no more worthy to be called your son. But I think the Savior's trying to teach us in the most dramatic situation, the power of the atonement. And you have seen that in your life. It's not theoretical. It's not words in a conference talk. It's true, but it's, 
It's the reality, and it's the reality in all of our lives. All of us need to learn how to access the power of the atonement for sin and also for pain that's not sin-related, that is part of all of our lives and mortality. More things you... So I love just... I love the word hide and coming out of out of the hiding. I think that's where Satan really loses is when he's, he can keep us... He keeps us... I'm not saying that backwards, listeners. You know what I'm saying, listeners, so I'll just move on. But keep sharing your story. I've got a couple questions. If you haven't covered them in the last five or ten minutes, um, I just want to make sure I've given you a chance to answer um, this question. What helped you stay together in your journey? And another question, now that you're on the other side of the experience, what, what can you say to know now that you didn't know? So I'll just turn those back to anything else you want to share. So one of the things we learned that we didn't know before, in our culture, there's, I want to talk about redeemed. One of the, the Savior's titles is Redeemer. He has many titles, but, but one of his titles is Redeemer, to be redeemed. And, and we talk about that, but do we believe that? He can make me whole. He can fix all of those things in your life. He can, he can address all of those through his infinite power. There is not an asterisk by your name. Sometimes we think, yes, okay, the Savior, the Atonement, yeah, it'll take care of you. But, you know, if it's one of the big three, there will remain an asterisk next to your name. No. The Lord himself says, I will remember them no more. Not that he's not capable of remembering them. He doesn't choose to remember them. If we repent and we come to him humbly with full purpose of heart, and that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect the first time we fall. That means that every time I fall, I come back to him and I come back to him. We've had some people ask, well, this, this isn't anything like me because his change was so immediate. My change, referring to my, me in the book. But it wasn't immediate. It was 40 years in the making. And every time, every time I fall, if I will just reach out to the Savior and say, help me again, he'll help me again. If we're sincere about it. So we had given the book to a therapist friend who uh, had quite a few people that she wanted to share this book with because it's, again, it's not a unique situation. And um, someone came back to her um, a week later and said, I don't know who these people are. I don't know their names. I don't know anything about them, but please tell them thank you for writing my story. And it's that's why we wrote this book. That's why we are not hiding. That's why we are being vulnerable. That's why we are all out there is because we know the families need to be saved. We know that we've lived it, that there's a path back. It, we lived it. We both knew Jesus Christ. We knew his power. And now we know Jesus Christ and we know his power and we know the joy and the hope because we have been on this journey together. 
And so that's why we have done this. And that's why we encourage families, <clears throat> encourage, <clears throat> encourage marriages and friends and priesthood leaders and, and ward members and everybody to just open your arms and love and be compassionate it's, to those that are going through this. It's scary to take that step. It's scary to step off into the darkness or to step off that ledge. But know that the Savior loves you. Know that your bishop and, and those that you work with love you and care about you. From, from the living Christ, I was impressed about this, but it says, he is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. I think all those are very important. The light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life, eternal life in the world to come. I am so grateful. I'm grateful for the love of my wife and her ability. So, so this took a lot of fortitude on her, or on her part. She went to the temple every week. She was impressed to go to the temple every week where she learned and felt how she could stay. And I'm grateful for a Savior who loves me enough that when I fall and come to him in, in my filth and, and, and sadness, that his infinite atonement reaches wherever I am and pulls me out of that, invites me to come be with him. I love the image we've talked about several times, the image of Peter walking on the water. The Savior's walking on the water, and Peter says, let me come out there too. And so he, he does, and he's walking on the water. And then he falters, and he falls. And what's the Savior's response? He does not grab his head and hold it underwater and say, have you learned your lesson, stupid kid? He reaches out and saves him and pulls him to him. Says, don't give up. You should have faith. This is all possible. But, but not chastisement, not anger, not why can't you figure this out? But try again. I love you. I have you. You're okay. Try again. I hope you've felt the spirit during this podcast. This is just sacred place, listeners, and I'm so honored when I'm able to have a couple like Ellen and Randy Destrup on the podcast. I, You used the word worth a few times during this podcast, and an earlier listener, Amy Pearson, talked about my worth is set, everything else is experience. And I, th I really agree with the doctrine that our worth is set. We should understand that the very best as Latter-day Saints because we understand that we're spirit children of loving Heavenly Parents. And just like with my own children, I believe our Heavenly Parents, nothing we can do can take them outside of the circle of their love and their desire to help us and be with us, including Jesus Christ that you felt in your darkest, most surprising moments. And 
And I think that's a doctrine we need to own better because then I think just like you're teaching us, we're more likely to to not sort of fix things on our own through self-reliance and our Puritan culture, but reach out to people in our when we need them the most, our heavenly parents, the Savior, trusted friends, a spouse. And that's the reason we're here on earth is to connect. I want to ask, I'm assuming since you've been vulnerable, you've become a safe place in your ward and maybe with your kids and just others that, and that's one of the principles of what you're doing is then because you're just safe for people. They may not be going through exactly, but they just go, okay, the death strips, they can go there with us because we just know they can go there with us. And I would assume those are, I don't know, payday is the right word, but just deeply satisfying moments where because you're open and vulnerable, you're a safe place and can help other people. Any comments on that? Over and over, we have heard... Um, especially as the book has addressed abuse um, and then subsequent, you know, sin or um, difficulty in life, we have heard over and over, me too. And um, and absolutely, we are so grateful that as people read and, and hear of these um, experiences and and sh- and feel the hope it i don't want to use the word payday um for for us but it's deeply you can see it in in their faces that it's deeply relieving to them to know just like randy felt his whole life that you know he was alone and it's deeply relieving to them to know that they're not alone and so i um that that has been we have loved sharing um our, our love sharing our story. How have your kids reacted? Okay. <laughs> you got to say that. You got to talk about it. <laughs> so there's an experience in the book um, that is. Um, the book is fictional. The, book's, the book is fictional. And in the book, we have three, three daughters, but in real life, we have two daughters. And um, there is the reaction of, of the character, Sarah, in the book is almost word for word, the reaction of our daughter, Courtney. Um, she was uh, early teen. And uh, and I told her um, what Randy had done and um, for good reasons. That's another long story. But um, she just teared up and she said, I just really wish that I could have been dad's friend when I wish I could have been a kid when dad was a kid so that I could have been his friend and helped him through all these tough situations. <laughs> and she just, the next time they saw each other, she just rushed in the door and just, he knew immediately that she knew and they just rushed to each other and held each other and loved each other. And they embraced for a long time. For a long time. And... <laughs> I had said to her, I took this opportunity to teach her, and I said. I took this opportunity to teach her. I did. And I said, I want you to know that this is what a covenant woman of God does. She walks into hell, and she stares the devil in the face, and she says, you may not have him. And she takes her husband by the hand and walks out. And that has stuck with her daughter. Our daughter Kayla 
same type of fortitude, same type of love for her father. Her, our example has helped her get through a similar experience in her life. And um, we just have the most amazing daughters. And because we spoke to them about this and have shared openly with them, they have a depth of understanding for those who similarly struggle. And, and this because of our honesty. I love that. It's what a beautiful family love story. And I love that you're safe for your daughters. I assume that your daughters can talk to you about what, what they need to talk to you about. And this is not what we want as parents is somehow to create a family culture that our kids will open up. And that's a balance because we want to teach principles of our church. We want to teach rules and commandments, but we also have to create a family culture where we realize they won't be able to do everything we ask them to do all the time, just like our heavenly parents understand. And we want them to open up to us as parents in our in their toughest times so we can be there. And and I've thought of one of the blessings that I'm a, that is the safe people you are for your ward family, for extended family, and for your own kids because you're willing to share this story. I'm at the end. I'll just turn it back to you, either of you, for any last comments, Randy or Ellen. I, I just echoed the response of our daughters and their love. There's no shame involved. Um, there was just love. So, so obviously you don't forget, right? Those actions happened and they're part of your history and, and they're not going to be forgotten. But the pain and the guilt and the shame is no longer there. So now when you think of those things, you think of the experience of the Savior and the joy that he brings into your life and into your heart. Literally the phrase, O oh death, where is thy sting? Yeah. Helen, do you have any last thoughts? God is so good. <laughs> and tell us the name of the book one more time and where to find it. It's Always Been You by Ellen Williams Dastrup. Ellen is spelled E-L-I-N. You can find it on Amazon.com, um, on BYUstore.com, and very soon on Audible and iTunes. And tell us the name of the Facebook group page, a the public Facebook, Facebook page, page you have. There's um, quite a bit of information there, uh, some questions that you can ask and answers that we will answer and a lot of different things. You could go uh, facebook.com backslash noble son of God is all one word. Um, or you can just search online. That's great. We did another podcast listeners, episode 247, um, married mother that also had an affair. Um, she talked about that and similar podcasts to this one. If you want to hear another story of just working through complicated things, um, but thank you, Ellen and Randy Dastrup. Thank you, listeners, for being here. Grateful for a good spirit and um, I'm really grateful for the work the Dastrups are doing and teaching us about how the atonement in Jesus Christ can give us hope. This is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>